So Aaron forgot to tell you I'm here today. I'm here. Just in case you're wondering. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I think most of you do, I'm Aaron's, I'm Aaron's dad. and uh, It had been uh, a lot of months because of some health issues that I was up here, but I got to be up here a few weeks ago, and we thought we'd try it again for a Sunday here on Palm Sunday. So we're going to take a look at the Palm Sunday story. And I'm going to ask those of you back there, I'm going to ask you not to put the Scripture on uh, on this thing, all right? Uh, and the reason is because just maybe half hour ago, I discovered that uh, I, I'm not online in this place with this thing. I, I can know I could get there. And the version of the Scripture that came up that's the default right now, and rarely so online, is from The Message, the version The Message by Eugene Peterson, which is really a, a paraphrase, and so I, I, I couldn't get a change to the version I usually use. So I started reading it, and I said, you know what? This is cool. So without being up there, you're going to have to listen to the story, right? So uh, let's, let's pray together, and we'll get to the story. Jesus, this is your story above all else. We, uh, we love to hear it, and we want to learn from it. So, Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the risen Christ, be with us in this place, in these moments. Amen. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. When they neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples with these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, say, the master needs them. He will send them with you. This is the full story of what was sketched earlier by the prophet. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way. Quoting from Zechariah, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, full of a packed animal, pack animal. The disciples went and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and colt out, laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees, threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead and crowds followed, all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in the highest heavens. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Unnerved, people were asking, what's going on here? Who is this? The parade crowd, which would have been a crowd different than the ones asking those questions. What's going on here? The parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus went straight to the temple, threw out everyone who had set up shop, buying and selling. He kicked over the tables of loan sharks, 
in the stalls of dove, dove merchants. He quoted this text from the Old Testament. My house will be designated a house of prayer. You've made it a hangout for thieves. Now there was room for the blind and the crippled to get in. They came to Jesus and he healed them. When the religious leaders saw the outrageous things he was doing, heard all the children running and shouting through the temple, Hosanna to David's son. Hosanna to David's son. They were up in arms and took him to task. Do you hear what these children are saying? Asked the temple authorities. And Jesus said, yes, I hear them. And haven't you read in God's word from the mouths of children and babies, I'll furnish a place for praise. Fed up. Jesus turned on his heel and left the city for Bethany where he would spend the night. This is God's word and we give him thanks for it. Things, things aren't always what they seem to be. Hall of Fame baseball player Reggie Jackson learned this lesson while playing for manager Earl Weaver and the uh, uh, Baltimore Orioles. He only lasted there one year. This story is probably a part of why. Earl Weaver had a firm rule that no player could steal a base unless given the steal sign by one of the coaches, and the coaches flashed the steal sign only when told to do so by Earl Weaver. Weaver. Well, Reggie Jackson was not fond of this idea. He felt he'd been around the league a long time. He knew the picture, pitchers and the catchers pretty well. He figured he could easily make the judgment on his own as to when he could or could not steal a base. So in the middle of one particularly tight game, Jackson decided to steal without a sign from the coach. He got a great jump off the pitcher. He slid safely into second base well before the catcher got the ball there. And as he got up, he shook the dirt from his uniform, glanced at the dugout, and flashed a de defiant smile, letting Earl Weaver know that Reggie Jackson had a mind of his own. Later, and calmly, believe it or not, Earl Weaver took Reggie Jackson aside and explained why he had not given the steal sign. First, the batter who followed Reggie was Lee May, a power hitter who had been stroking the bat really, really well recently. When Jackson stole second, first base became open, and the opposition intentionally walked Lee May, taking the bat out of his hands. Second, the batter behind Lee May had never been very productive against this particular pitcher, so Weaver had to send up a pinch hitter to try to drive the two men on base in. That left the manager without the bench strength he might need later in the game. So you see, it was all a matter of perspective. Things aren't always what they seemed to be. Reggie Jackson was looking at one small, 
isolated frame in the game. His manager was looking at the whole game. Friends, we, we humans tend to see just one small frame at a time in the game of life. But God sees the whole game from beginning to end, from his home beyond time and space. It's all a matter of perspective. Author uh, Robert Fulham remembers a time when his daughter, Molly, taught him this lesson. Uh, Fulgham's seven-year-old daughter loved to pack lunches for herself and the other family members after mom had put pretty much everything together, you know. In each bag, she would place a sandwich, a piece of fruit, some milk money, and often a treat or even a note from Molly. One morning, Mommy handed her dad two bags. One was a regular lunch sack, while the other was sealed tightly with duct tape and staples and paper clips. Why two bags, asked Dad. Oh, just some stuff, she said. Take it with you. Into the briefcase went the two bags as Fulham kissed his daughter goodbye and headed for work. While he was eating lunch, he opened the second bag. Inside, he found two hair ribbons, three small stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, two animal crackers, a marble, a used lipstick, a small doll, two chocolate kisses, and 13 pennies. He smiled and thought, how charming. Rushing off to an afternoon full of important appointments, he swept his desk clean into the wastebasket. I don't know what he was doing, dumping the chocolates, but it's what he did. All that was left of his lunch, along with Molly's junk. There wasn't anything in there I needed, he told himself. Well, that evening, Molly interrupted his reading of the newspaper. Where's my, where's my bag, she asked. What bag, he replied. You know, you know, Dad, the one I gave you this morning. I left it at the office, said Dad. Why? I want it back, answered Molly. Why? Dad asked again. Those are my things in the sack, Daddy. The ones I really like. I thought you might like to play with them, but now I want them back. You didn't lose the bag, did you, Daddy? There were tears in her eyes now, and Dad was feeling pretty low. Oh, no, oh, no, he said, and then he lied. I just forgot to bring it home. Lord Fulgham, all the seven-year-old held dear. Love in a paper sack, and I had missed it. Not only missed it, but I had thrown it in the wastebasket because there wasn't anything in there I needed. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? To a little girl... The contents of the sack represented something wonderful that daddy would enjoy. But to her father, the second bag contained nothing but junk to be thrown out. Nothing that he needed. 
But late that night, Robert Fulgham drove all the way back to his office to retrieve his daughter's treasures from his wastebasket before the cleaners got there. Things aren't always what they seem to be. It's all a matter of perspective. And that is certainly true of the Palm Sunday event that we celebrate today. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the various characters involved in the story saw the event from their own unique perspective. Question today is this. Which of these characters do you want to identify? I didn't ask you which of these characters do you identify with, but which of these characters do you want to identify with? We'll come back to that at the end. Consider with me, first of all, the perspective of the crowd that day. To, crowd, to the crowd, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was an act of defiance. The crowd assumed, and these were most likely the poor and the downtrodden, the crowd assumed Jesus was ready to get in the face of King Herod, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Roman military presence. They had heard about his miracles, the most recent being the raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. Word of the raising of Lazarus had spread like wildfire throughout the region around Jerusalem. The crowd saw Jesus as a king who had come in power to overthrow the oppressors of the people. After all, a prophet who could raise the dead to life could do anything. And the common folk in the crowd, they knew what they wanted Jesus to do. No doubt about it. They wanted him to inspire a revolution. They wanted him to drive the Roman armies from their land. They wanted him to restore the kingdom of Israel to its glory days. To put it in the vernacular of our day, the crowd figured Jesus had come to kick some. I'll let you fill in that blank. And Jesus did not disappoint them. Well, not at first, anyway. According to Matthew's account, Jesus went immediately to the temple. There, he confronted the temple bankers who were exploiting poor pilgrims from around the world, poor pilgrims who had come to celebrate the Jewish Passover. This exploitation took the form of high exchange rates charged for the monies these peasants needed to convert into temple dollars, temple dollars, so they could then go and purchase sacrificial doves that were likewise being sold at unfair and inflated prices. A double gouge. Jesus was incensed at the lack of justice he saw demonstrated in the very house of God, the poor being taken advantage of by the very ones, the priests, whom God expected would help to relieve their suffering. So Jesus lashed out, and get this, not at the Romans, but at the Jerusalem religious establishment. And the crowd... The crowd missed the point of it all. 
They failed to see that Jesus had come not to assemble the armies of Israel to do battles with the armies of Rome. Jesus had come to straighten out his own, to reveal a fuller in a fuller way that God is interested in love and righteousness, peace and justice, and Jesus was ready to lay down his life to make that point. Consider next, I love this one, the perspective of the children that day. For the children, it was an occasion for joy. The children are not merely a footnote to the story, but an integral part of the story. Unashamed and unabashed, they shout their praise of Jesus in the temple courtyard, a place they weren't even supposed to be, bad daddy and mommy, to worship Jesus as God and trust Jesus as Lord. It's no great leap for children. They, they see love in his eyes. They're drawn to the gentleness of his spirit. They know Jesus is authentic. When they sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, they know it. Says a prominent theologian, when we listen again to the fresh, clear voices of the children shouting their praises, we are faced with one great fact. There are truths which only the simple in heart can see and which are hidden from the wise and the learned and the sophisticated. There are many times when heaven is nearer the child than it is to the wisest, most intelligent, and most experienced of men and women. There you have it. The children saw heaven in Jesus. They saw authenticity in Jesus. And they had to respond spontaneously. There's a story I like. It's told about a birthday party for the mother of a family. When it was time to present her with gifts, she was told to sit in her favorite living room chair, and one by one, the father first and the two older children came in from the kitchen, bearing their gifts on a tray, bowing solemnly before mom as if she was royalty, and they presented their tokens of love. The youngest child, apparently too little to have been planned in the gift selection and probably feared that she couldn't keep a secret, had been left out of the planning. But you would not have known it that day. She was full of joy as she watched mom receive and open her gifts. Quietly and unnoticed, she slipped out of the room. When the others thought the party was over and the gift-giving done, she suddenly appeared from the kitchen bearing an empty tray. She walked over to her mother, bowed like all of the others, laid the tray on the floor, stepped on it and said with childish joy, Mommy, I give you me. And which do you think was the greatest gift of them all? On that long ago Sunday of the Palms, the children gave themselves to Jesus without reservation or fear, I tell you. 
They gave themselves to Jesus without asking for anything, without expecting anything. They gave themselves to Jesus. And all because, from the children's perspective, Jesus was worthy of so great a gift. They saw heaven in Jesus. And the children, not the temple leaders, not even the disciples of Jesus, but the children are an example for us all. Isn't it interesting? I find it interesting that Jesus never said, unless you come as these adult disciples of me have come, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he said, unless you come as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mommy, I give you me. Thirdly, consider the perspective of Jesus himself that day. While the others sang and shouted for joy, seeing a, seeing a crown and a throne in his future, Jesus saw a cross and a tomb out there waiting for him. Only a day or two earlier, his in, uh, just before his entry into Jerusalem on that donkey, Jesus had taken his disciples aside and he'd said this to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, a reference to himself, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will turn him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Matthew's story tells us that Jesus knew what was coming, that Good Friday would not take Jesus by surprise. That Good Friday was on his mind the day he rode into Jerusalem. To the crowd, it was an act of defiance. To the children, it was an occasion for joy. To Jesus, it was an opportunity for obedience. For Jesus sought only to do the will of God in heaven. He knew he knew that it was all a part of a grand plan, God's plan to embrace the world with love, God's plan to redeem humanity from its sin, God's plan to bring a lost human race back to himself, God's plan to restore the whole of creation to what the Creator always meant it to be. Jesus would play a unique role in God's grand plan. Jesus would show God's love for the world by making the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus would give himself up on a cross to offer God's amazing grace. The king, the king, the crowd clamored to enthrone. The king, the children cheered and cherished. This king knew he was destined to climb a hill called Golgotha and lay down his life as an expression of God's love, as an extension of God's grace, and as an offer of God's mercy. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, says the Bible. For Jesus, it was an opportunity for obedience. That brings us to consider, finally, this perspective of God, the God of the universe, 
the God whom Jesus simply and reverently called Father. To God, the Palm Sunday event came in the fullness of time. It was the beginning of the week of reckoning that would lead to the day of salvation. And again, it had all been planned before the foundations of the world, say the biblical writers. From God's view in the realm of the timeless and eternal, the Creator saw the sin, rebellion, and waywardness of humanity that had marred and destroyed God's handiwork. God saw the violence and exploitation, the cruelty and injustice that far too often dominate the human seed. God's heart was broken for the whole of creation. And God saw the need to take action. God could have sent an army of invincible angels to overpower a sinful human race. God could have clapped together the hands of the divine just once. And in that moment, the lights of the universe would have gone out. Every last star in the heavens shut down forever. But the love of God does not seek to overpower. The love of God does not seek to destroy. The love of God seeks to save and to serve, to welcome home to all who will see their home in God. Some call this week before Easter, Holy Week. That's my default. Others call it Passion Week. What you choose to call the week really isn't all that important, but how you choose to see the week may be all important. I invite you to see it from God's perspective as a week of reckoning leading up to the day of salvation, to what we call Good Friday. On that long ago Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem like a hometown hero treated to a ticker tape parade. But the powerful and the elite were also there, watching waiting from behind the scenes. And by the following Friday, Jesus' status as a hero had gone. The cheers of one crowd became the jeers of a very different crowd, a lynch mob. The shouts of Hosanna were now cries for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They screamed it in one voice to a hill of, to a hill of garbage. Outside the city walls, Jesus was taken to a cross. Jesus was nailed like a common criminal, like an enemy of Rome. Jesus was hung up to die between two thieves. He was taunted and mocked, spat upon, laughed at, whipped. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Hey! Jesus, you saved others. Save yourself. Prove you are the Son of God. Come down from that cross. To which Jesus responded. Remember? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
He died and was buried. But the eyes of the Father were still upon the Son. Many years later, another of God's spokespersons would write these words. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, Palm Sunday is about power after all. The crowd was right. And the crowd was wrong. For it was not about the power of a charismatic leader mustering the troops to his side. It was not the power of one army to defeat another army. Palm Sunday was and Palm Sunday is about the power of love. The power of God's transforming love and amazing grace. As the Father watched the Son ride into Jerusalem that day, both knew what lay ahead. Both saw the cross in the palm branches. Yet on he rode to die. Love compelled him. That all out for us love of God for all of God's creatures, compelled him. So, as we move through Holy Week 2022, please, let's not get to Easter too quickly. That word's been spoken here maybe three times this morning, and that's enough for today. Let's take our time. Don't miss good Friday. It is too easy to miss Good Friday. We much more prefer triumph to suffering, right? Don't rush past Good Friday. Remember, Jesus couldn't get to Easter without getting through going through Good Friday. Friends, it is the cross. It is the cross that points us to the power of God's love reaching down seeking us out, longing to draw us closer to love's embrace. Take the cross out of Christianity. Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, meaningless. So, with Palm Sunday, with which Palm Sunday character do you want to identify? And what will it take to get you there? The crowd, the crowd who misunderstood our Lord's mission? The children who opened their arms to his open arms? To Jesus? Now, don't go there, at least not too quickly. That's a dangerous and difficult road. That take up your cross thing is a part of it. Don't glaze over that. Maybe you want to identify with God the Father. Don't be preposterous. Now, our choice is rather simple. The crowd, filled with two different groups, poor and oppressed, powerful and the elite, but both misunderstood. Or the children. Unless you come as little children 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't miss the cross. Imagine the sorrow the cross would have caused to those little children. Pretty sure good parents kept them away. But imagine it. And don't rush to Easter. Don't miss Good Friday. Pray with me.